With that, I would uh, ask you to bow your head and your hearts with me as we seek the Lord's grace as we open up His Word this morning. Our Father in heaven, we do come before you this morning and give you praise for your faithfulness to us, your grace to us to to put us in a nation in which we can worship you uh, boldly and declare your name from the rooftops. And Lord, we thank you that we can assemble this morning freely and we can open up the Bible and read of your words and rejoice in your grace. And Lord, we just want to offer up right now thanksgiving to you for this blessing. We offer up thanksgiving to you because you are faithful to us and you give us all that we need for life and for godliness. And in these moments, in this hour that we have to to worship you together, Father, we ask that your Holy Spirit will fill us, dominate our thoughts, dominate our hearts, draw us to yourself in worship and adoration and praise, cleanse us of our unrighteousness, purify us with your word, grant us a vision for, for a redemptive life. Lord, we need you desperately to speak to us. Many of us are dull. We are dull in our senses, in our thinking, and in our minds. We are distracted by all of the the various temptations and concerns and legitimate issues that are in our life. And so, Lord, we, we don't ask you to remove all of those things from our lives. We just simply ask you to give us sharp minds. We ask you to give us a desire to hear from you, and we pray that you'll give us the power to be able to learn from you this morning in Colossians 4, verses 7 through 18. Lord, we need you right now, and we call on you in the power of the Holy Spirit to grant us all that we need for life, for godliness, for joy, and for delight in you. We ask this in the Savior's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. I do invite you to turn your Bibles to Colossians chapter 4 where we will finish the last section of the book of Colossians this morning. We'll finish the last section of the book of Colossians. It is a section where Paul is simply greeting the Colossians. He's sending greetings from a lot of his friends. He's offering greetings to his friends, not only in Colossae, but in Laodicea and Hierapolis and other individuals. It's a unique text. Without question. And so in some ways it'll be a unique sermon this morning. It's not the kind of sermon that uh, we have been enjoying over the last number of months because it's a unique text. But one word that comes up in our passage time and time again is the word greet or greetings. And so I think it would be good for me to tell you that to, to greet someone is to embrace that person in the spirit of love. It is to embrace someone in a spirit of love. And so when you see the word greet or greetings or greets, you need to understand that Paul is referring to an embracing of another person or another people in a a spirit of love for them. And I believe that that is exactly what God is calling us to do this morning. He is calling us to embrace one another and embrace other Christians in a spirit of love. The title of the message this morning is Deeper in Gospel Friendship. Deeper in gospel friendship, which is deeper in an embracing of one another in a spirit of love. I'll read the text out loud as you read it silently. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Here being Rome. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who's called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God. 
and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who's one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. May God bless the reading of his word. I want to begin this morning by asking you one question that I want you to answer silently, and then I'm going to ask you a series of questions that we're going to interact over for a few minutes. Okay, so the first question that I want you to answer silently is, on a scale of 1 to 10, how important is friendship to you? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is friendship? To you, How important is it that a group of gospel-centered, Christ-exalting, personally edifying people are in your life to love you and hold you accountable and partner with you in ministry? On a scale of 1 to 10, how important is that? Do you say, I need people like that in my life? I want people like that in my life. I have people like that in my life. Or... Or do you say, you know, I really prefer to be alone. I prefer to do my own thing in my own way in my own time. How important is friendship to you on a scale of 1 to 10? I think the answer to that question gives you a bit of a barometer, a gauge as to how much you really understand the nature of what God came to do in his gospel. God has called us to friendship. He's called us to partnership. He's called us to sharing life together. And I think the more we understand the gospel, the more we understand our friendship with Jesus, the more we understand that calling and the more we want to run to that calling of friendship with one another. All right, so now now let's let's just answer some questions together. Question number one, um, how should the gospel impact our approach to friendship? How should the gospel impact our approach to friendship? Listen, we were all not Christians at one point in time, and we had friends. Now we are Christians. The gospel has changed our lives. How does that change our approach and our idea of what friendship is? Mark, I'll let you answer first. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's really good. It changes my approach about giving and receiving. Before I became a Christian, I wanted friends out of what I could get. Now that I've become a Christian, I want to become friends with people so that I can give to them. And I think you would elaborate and say, I want to give God's love. I want to give grace, um, patience, the fruit of the Spirit, right? Good, because that's how Jesus has been a friend to you. Okay, so that's great, Mark. That's great. Phil? Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That's good. So Jesus gives us the template for friendship. You know, he, he is a friend of sinners and he shows his friendship by coming and laying down his life for his who? For his what? Friends. For his friends. That's good. Uh, this is kind of a, a yes or no question, but I want you to answer why, why this is the case. So the question is, do you believe that God has called you to robust friendships? Do you believe that God has called you to have robust friendships in this world? And if so, why or why not? Yes, Candace. I think that the primary uh, way in which I 
Yes. That's good. And so reconciliation is not merely vertical between God and us, but is to each other. And we manifest the reconciliation uh, of ourselves to God by how we reconcile with one another and are at one with one another. We are unified together. And so every gospel relationship that we have that is marked by love and grace and forgiveness and patience and, and forbearance, is a testimony of God's reconciling love for us, right? Right? All right. Next question. Um, which is more important, having friends or being a friend to people? And why? Leah, what did you say? You, I think you, being a friend. It is. Um, with our social media with our social media just explosion over the last 10 years, so many of us gauge our worth and value by how many friends we accumulate on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. But not only that, we then, we then um, gauge our value on how many friends like or comment on our posts or pictures. And that's how we derive our worth because we now have friends who then value what we do and what we have, right? But that is not, that is not the gauge for friendship or else Jesus would, not, would have been considered a terrible friend because people didn't like him. They didn't favorite his posts. As a matter of fact, they despised him and they ridiculed him, right? So what's more important, having friends or being a friend? Being a friend. All right, now let's, let's have an honest conversation. What are some obstacles to real friendship? What are some obstacles to real friendship? The American spirit that says, I'm a lone ranger, I'm independent, I'm a self-made man. Yes, yes. The American spirit, the independent spirit. I don't need other people. I can do this on my own. I agree with that. What are some other obstacles? Oh, yes. Yes. Uh, Trina said insecurity. Trina, um, I'm going to, just because you say that, I'm going to lay out an illustration I normally put on a whiteboard. But I want you to picture for a moment um, you standing on a ledge. And, and, and down below this ledge is this, um, this abyss. It is the abyss of rejection. You're getting to rejection, right, Trina? And that kind of what you were talking about with insecurity. The abyss of rejection. And on the other side of this abyss is another cliff. It's another ledge, and there's another person standing on the ledge. And that person is holding out their hand to you. And here you are, you're inclined to hold your hand out to them and pull them over to yourself to get on the same side so you can be friends with one another and enjoy a relationship. But you know that in the middle of you is this sea of abyss of, of rejection. And so they're holding out their hand, you're holding out your hand, and you're about to grab them and come over, but you're scared, you're scared that when you reach over to that other person to pull them into friendship, that they might pull their hand away, and where will you go? To the abyss of rejection. And so oftentimes, we stand on the ledge, and we're, we're, we're inclined to put out our hand toward friendship, but we pull back because we don't want to experience what? Rejection. Now listen, what we need to understand, that if we are Christians, if we are believers, we always stand on the ledge, and there's always the abyss of rejection, and there's always people who need to be loved by us, but the comforting thing is that God is in heaven, and He is attached to us, what I call the bungee cord of God's love. <laughs> the bungee cord of God's love. And it's called the gospel, and this cord runs all the way around, and it wraps around our waist. And we can reach over and befriend people all of the time. And even if they pull their hand back and we fall down toward the abyss, at some point we're going to pop back up because we're attached to the very love of God. So we never fall fully into that abyss because he's never going to reject us. He's never going to turn his back on us. And he's always going to be connected to us through Jesus Christ. And so we need to understand that. So that's good. Thank you for bringing out the, the fear of, of rejection there. 
Let, let, me, let me ask maybe one or two more questions. Um, how can you develop deeper friendships in the church? How can you develop deeper friendships than what you currently have in the church? What are some ways to do that? Yes, spend time together. Intentionally spend time with people. Good. How else? Bill. Yeah. Yes. I think when we, uh, Phil says um, opening up, and, and I, I'll supply the word intimacy, being intimate with people, being honest and, and, and vulnerable to other people. I think when you stay on a surface level and you talk about surface things, you don't develop deeper friendships. You just simply de- develop a, um, a getting used to this kind of um, acquaintanceship. I know there's a better way to say that, but Phil, I think what you're saying is if we really want to be friends with one another, we have to go deeper in our understanding of one another and our appreciation of what our struggles, delights, and issues are. Be willing to invest. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, friendship is an investment. It's an investment in your future and their future. But it takes it costs. Yes. Time, like cost resources, but you've got to be willing to invest. I, I, I would say that the best friends that I have are because they have invested in my life and I have invested in their life over a period of years. It's not simply just having the commonality of the same church building and hearing the same sermons and singing the same songs. Although that's good, but it's them laying down their lives for me and my laying down their life for them. It's, it's them sacrificing something that they have so that I can have something and me sacrificing something that I have so that they can have something. That's where deep and intimate friendship is rooted and built right there. Okay, that's good. You guys are, are, um, have a good handle on this. Um, I want to say from this final uh, section of Colossians that the, that the big idea here, and it, um, Isaiah or Melissa, if you'll put this up on the screen, When you embrace the supremacy and all-satisfying sufficiency of Jesus Christ, you will experience a depth and a delight of friendship you never thought possible. Now just look at that. Look at that. The reason I say that you can go deeper in friendship and you can be more delighted than you've ever been in your relationships with people is because of what Paul has said in Colossians 1, Colossians 2, Colossians 3, and the first half of Colossians 4, is that Christ is Lord of all. He is Lord in creation. He is Lord in redemption. He is head over the church. He is the redeemer of the church. And when you attach yourself to Christ, you know and you experience the magnitude of God's love. You you are overwhelmed by grace and you are overcome by His mercy to such a degree that you want to share in that grace and you want to share in that mercy with other people. And so what happens is, is you submit to the Lordship of Christ and, and how great and glorious He is and what happens is it spills over into human relationships. It spills over into a depth and a delight that you've never known before. And so that's what we see played out in verses 7 through 18. We see Paul giving testimony of these friends and of these partners who he has uh, commonality with and love for through the gospel. And this is an interesting passage. He just kind of makes statements about these different people in these different churches. And so what I really want to do right now is I just want to take some snapshots of friendships that we see in verses 7 to 18 as he finishes up his letter. Okay, it's going to be a little different. Um, The first snapshot that I want to look at is the snapshot of friends who are are with Paul in Rome. Paul is in prison, as you may recall, and he just gives us a a bit of a snapshot of who's with him and what they're like and why they are uh, such good friends to him. Snapshot number one are friends who are with Paul in Rome. Who's the first friend that we read about right there in verse 7? Tychicus, Tychicus. And what we see about Tychicus is that he has high character and great value to Paul. Notice what he calls Tychicus. 
He says he's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. He's a beloved brother. Like Paul's saying, I love him. He's in my spiritual family. He's a brother of mine, and I love him dearly. He's a faithful minister. He is a consistent servant of the church and a consistent servant of my own, of me. And he's a fellow servant, which is to say he's a fellow slave. In other words, Tychicus says the same thing about himself that I say about myself, Paul would say, is that I no longer live, but, but what? Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what Tychicus says about himself. I'm a slave of Christ. I no longer have an identity. And essentially what Paul is saying is because of his high character and his great value, I am sending him to Colossae with this letter. Tychicus was charged to take the the letter to the Colossians. He was also charged to take the letter to the Ephesians. And not only that, he wasn't simply just going to deliver a letter. But because of his high character, because of his identity in Christ, because of his love for Jesus, and because he had proven himself to be a faithful friend, Paul is saying to the church at Colossae that when Tychicus comes, he's essentially going to read the letter. But he's not only going to read it, he's going to explain it to you. He's not only going to explain it to you, he's going he's to have some extra comments that I'm not putting in the letter about how I'm doing and about the circumstances that I'm in and how you can take part in Paul's ministry, in my ministry. And then he's also going to answer any questions or concerns that you have. And I know with these false teachers around Colossae, he's also going to be there to combat them with the truth of the gospel. And this is Paul's friend, Tychicus. Now, I think that we need to see how Paul identifies Tychicus in this elevated way. He's a beloved brother, a faithful minister, a fellow servant in the Lord. Paul trusts Tychicus unequivocally because of his allegiance to and affection for Jesus. And then, kind of in the same breath, he talks about Onesimus. He calls Onesimus our faithful and beloved brother. Now, if you can remember a few weeks ago, We took a very close look at Onesimus. And can you remember what Onesimus had done? Now, Onesimus is from Colossae. What had he done? Yes, he's a runaway slave, likely stolen some things from Philemon, right? And he finds himself in Rome, likely in prison. He's in prison with Paul, and Paul teaches Onesimus the gospel. Onesimus hears the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ and he gives his life to Jesus. And he crosses over from spiritual death to spiritual life. He leaves the life of of stealing and running away behind and he goes forward toward obedience to Jesus and love for him and delight in him. And it's interesting now that Paul says he is a faithful and beloved brother. And so... The church at Colossae, when they hear this read, they're likely thinking to him, themselves, you're, you're not talking about the same Onesimus that we know. He is not faithful, and he is not a beloved brother. And you know what Paul would say? You know what? You're exactly right. I'm not talking about the Onesimus that you know. I'm talking about a new Onesimus. The one is the one that's crossed over from death to life, the one who has a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. He is a faithful and beloved brother because God has made him so. And I just want to say this just by way of a principle uh, regarding friendship. We don't choose friends based on what they've done in their past. We choose friends based on who they are in Jesus Christ and on the level of edification that that relationship can produce. That's how we choose friends. Onesimus is a friend of Paul's. Not because Paul loved thieving or Paul loved running away. No, he's a friend of Paul's because he's a new creation in Christ and Paul believes that their friendship can produce edification and spiritual strength and ultimately the glory of God. Look at the next person, this friend of Paul's, my fellow prisoner greets you. His name is Aristarchus, Aristarchus. Um, 
The only thing really to observe here, I think, is the fact that he calls Aristarchus a fellow prisoner. A prisoner. A, a one who is suffering. I just want to say that believers who experience trials together often form strong bonds of friendship together. Believers who experience suffering and trials together often form stronger bonds of friendship. I, my dad and mom are here uh, this morning, and my dad's dad uh, was a World War II veteran and uh, was decorated soldier. And one of the things that I remember as a kid was that my grandfather and my grandmother Every few years, they would go to these reunions of uh, those that were in his infantry. And I remember he would get really excited about going to these reunions to see his old war buddies. And he always spoke of them fondly. And he always spoke of them with a great sense of pride and, and desire to see them. And then they would come back talk about how great of a time that they had. Because the bond that had been formed during battle and during, the war, during World War II was was so strong and so emotional and so tight that those were his quote unquote brothers for the rest of his life. Now I want to I want to bring a principle here that's that's important. My my guess is that my grandfather spent less than 20% of his time overseas actually fighting. Actually with gun in hand. I'd probably say maybe less than 10% of his time. There was a whole other 80 or 90% of his time spent with these guys. And what were they doing then? They were suffering together. They were talking together. They were eating together. They were doing everything together. And that's really where the bond grew. Was it suffering together and was it going through trials of war together? Absolutely. But it was also those times in which they were just spending talking, uh, conversing, enjoying one another. And I just want to make this principle that when you suffer together and you go through trials together and you participate with one another in times of, of difficulty, it creates bonds, spiritual bonds and relationships that are essentially unbreakable. And if that is true for soldiers, how much more true can it be for those of us who share the Holy Spirit, share the bondship of Jesus Christ? And so I guess my point is this. Let's walk together with people who are suffering. Let's walk together with our brothers and sisters who are struggling, who are, who are going through difficulty, because in doing so, we create bonds that are eternal. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And then he says, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. That's all he says about Mark. What do we know about Paul and Barnabas' relationship? We talked about this two weeks ago. Mark, what do we know about the history between Paul and Mark? They were at odds with each other. They were. They were at odds with each other. Basically, in my words, Mark kind of chickened out on a mission trip, right? And he went back home. They were in Pamphylia preaching the gospel, and Mark just basically said, I'm out of here. I'm not going any further. Yeah, gospel wimp. I think I did use that term. All right. And so, and so that was probably around AD 49 or AD 50 is when that happened. Okay, it's 12 years or 14 years removed from that now that Paul is writing from a Roman prison and he's, he's got Mark there with him. He's the cousin of Barnabas and Paul considers Mark a valuable minister of the gospel and a close friend. What does that tell you about friendship? It tells you that just because you, you get at odds with one another at some point, or just because you sin against one another at some point, that should not create a permanent division. You don't go and find another church to attend. You don't go and find another city to live in. But you work out your differences through prayer and long-suffering and patience with one another. At the, at the end of Paul's life, he talks about Mark, and he says that he's a faithful brother and very useful to him in his ministry. Gospel friendship is... Is, is, is friendship that is based on an attitude of forgiveness and love and forbearance with one another, just as it was with Paul and with Mark. And then he calls out this guy named Justice, Jesus, who is called Justice. 
Uh, for those of you who are unaware, the, the name Jesus was a very common name in first century. It was a very common name. And he's a Jewish man. And so his Gentile name, or you'd say his Roman name, was also called Justice. Kind of like Saul, and his name was Paul. This is Jesus, and his name is Justice. We don't really know anything about this man in particular. It's the only time that he's mentioned in Scripture. But what does Paul follow up about this man, Justice, and Mark and Aristarchus? Well, he says, These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. What is he saying about these men? He's saying these are the only Jews with me who love Jesus and labor for the gospel, and they're a huge source of comfort to me. Why is it, do you think, that these Jewish men who've become Christians are a real comfort to Paul? I think that, he's, that they're a big comfort to Paul because if you can remember when he's writing to the Roman church, he says, I could wish myself accursed if Israel would be saved. Do you remember that? Well, I think that these men are a comfort to him because they, in fact, are saved and they are of Israel, but they've seen that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And so it brings a great comfort to him. So these three Jewish men are a blessing to him and are great friends to him. Let's look at the next three men, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Now, Epaphras, he says, is a servant of Jesus Christ, a prayer warrior, and a hard worker. A servant of Jesus Christ. He lays his life down every day for the glory of Jesus. He does not consider his life his own. He considers his life belonging to Jesus. And then notice that he says, he always struggles on your behalf in his prayers. That you may stand mature and fully assured in the will of God. Epaphras very likely planted the church in Colossae, in Laodicea, and Hierapolis. There are three towns that were no more than 12 to 15 miles apart. They actually formed a triangle. And it is likely that Epaphras heard Paul preach the gospel in Ephesus. When Paul was in Ephesus for about three years, he gets saved, goes back to his hometown in Colossae, and, and plants churches, preaches the gospel, plants churches and preaches the gospel in those three towns. And so he says, Epaphras... He is a prayer warrior for you. He is struggling on your behalf in his prayers. He wants you to be mature. Epaphras follows the model of Paul. Because if you look at the description of Epaphras, you can see the same effort and the same desires of Paul for the church at Colossae that we see right here for Epaphras for the church of Colossae. He struggles. He agonizes. He wants them to be complete and mature and assured in the will of God. And then notice his hard work. He's worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Um, I'll make one note. Technically, that phrase worked hard, it's a different word than what's normally used in the New Testament. It means to work hard with great pain, with great struggle. It means there is great pain to the person who is working on behalf of another. And that is precisely what Epaphras did. He felt pain so that the Colossian church could feel pleasure. He felt difficulty so they could feel delight. That's Epaphras. He's a hard worker, servant of Christ, prayer warrior on their behalf. He's a great friend to the church at Colossae. And then he calls Luke, Luke the beloved physician. He calls him the beloved physician not because he's such a great doctor, but because he's a great friend. We don't read a lot about Luke in the New Testament. We see him in the book of Acts. We read about him in a few occasions, little snippets here and there in Paul's letters. But this is what we know. We know that Luke was overcome and overwhelmed by the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. And we know that he saw Paul, who was preaching this message, and Luke left his practice and joined himself with Paul and became a close friend with Paul when going on missionary journey after missionary journey after missionary journey. 
And Luke, with his great intellect, decided, I'm going to write down everything that I see and all that Paul does and everything that the gospel does in advancing to all over the Roman Empire. I'm going to record it so that people can read it and be encouraged. And certainly the Holy, Holy Spirit was inspiring him. And Luke, a man who leaves his practice to join himself with this gospel ambassador, ultimately writes about a third of the New Testament that we have in our hands. The Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts. He also likely writes uh, 2 Timothy and possibly even this letter. He, he, uh, when I say writes, I mean he wrote down literally what Paul dictated to him. Because at the end of this letter, Paul says, um, I write this greeting with my own hand, which means somebody else actually wrote the, wrote the rest of it. But Luke is a faithful friend. Paul calls him the beloved physician. And then finally, he says, Demas. What else does Paul say about Demas? <laughs> right here. What else does he say? Nothing. And then, Mark, I saw you mouth it. Later, what does Paul say about Demas? He has forsaken me. And listen, I'm not... I'm not, this is not a hill to die on, but I just wonder if Paul already saw some concerns that he had for Demas. This is the only person in this list that we don't see anything about. And it would be just uh, years after this that Demas decides to abandon Paul and abandon the gospel because he loved the world. Because he loved the world. But at this time, Demas was still uh, with Paul. Okay, so that's kind of a snapshot of Paul's friends who were with him in Rome at prison, Tychicus, Onesimus, Aristarchus, Mark, Justus, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Let's look at snapshot number two. It'll be a lot shorter, and so we'll snapshot number three. Friends who are close to the Colossians in Asia. Let's just read verses 15 through 17 again. It says, Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and at Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Keep your eyes on the text right there. What does he say? He's saying, listen, I, I want y'all to speak to the church that's in Laodicea, 12 miles away. And to Nympha, who is likely a wealthy widow who hosts a, a, a church in her house, likely in Laodicea. There are multiple local congregations likely in that city. And he says, when, when this letter is read to you guys, I want you to either copy it or take it over to Laodicea so that they can read this letter as well and it can be applicable to them just like it's applicable to you. And then see that the letter that was written to Laodicea gets to you guys so that you can benefit from what I or someone else wrote to them as well. There's, a, there's an exchange here that's going on. Now, I will say I do think that this might be a little hint that says that Paul understood the universality of his writing, the, the inspiration of his writing. Because he's saying, yeah, I'm writing it to you, Colossians, but I also want the Laodiceans to read it. And I also want the church that's in Nympha's house to read it because this is spiritually profitable to read, right? And so this is what he's saying. You guys are friends with one another. You should be friends with one another. You're brothers and sisters. You're in the same family. You might meet separately on Sundays, and you might have a really close fellowship with one another because you're proximately um, close to one another, but you need to have as much partnership and as much fellowship and friendship with these other churches that are close to you as, poss as you possibly can because this is the nature of gospel friendship. Even gospel churches partner with one another. They're not jealous of one another. They're not embittered toward one another. They don't hate one another. They love each other and they partner in the gospel together. And I, I think we need to just observe this, what I'm calling the archivist principle in verse 17. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. This is one friend telling another friend that you need to be faithful to what God has called you to do. You need to be faithful to what God has called you to do. And I believe that true friendship involves friends instructing and exhorting one another in what their calling is. Yeah. And the ones who are receiving that instruction to be thankful for it. 
And so these are the friends who are close to the Colossians in Asia. Finally, let's look down at the last section, snapshot number three, Paul himself, a friend of Colossians and a friend of the churches. He says, I write this greeting with my own hand. In other words, one of these other brothers has, has written this as I've dictated it, um, but I'm writing this with my own hand so that you can know it comes from me and I authorize it. And he, he basically says two things. He says, remember my chains and grace be with you. When he says, remember my chains, do you think that it is Paul's intention for the Colossians to say, oh yeah, you remember um, Paul is in jail and is chained up. Okay, let's get on with our life. Is that what he intends? No. Chris Heitch, what do you think he intends when he says, remember my chains? Yeah, absolutely. I think that is absolutely part of it. And so we're remembering why he's there, and we, we want to follow in his example of being gospel-centered, but how else can we remember him? In prayer. In prayer. So we're remembering his gospel-centeredness, his Christ-exalting ministry, and now, as he's already told us to do in verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 and 6, we've got to remember him in prayer, going to the Lord on his behalf. And then he says also, grace be with you. What is grace? What is grace? It is. It is, it is God bestowing favor upon people who are unworthy of that favor. Phil says it's God's unmerited favor. That is, he, he bestows love and mercy and, and um, concern and even salvation for people who don't deserve it. And when Paul writes about grace, he normally is referring to one of three things. Grace for salvation, grace for sanctification, or grace for your speech. And I believe that in this case, he's writing for it all. You know, may the God who has saved you, may the God who is sanctifying you, may the God who has given you words of speech, as he's just talked about in chapter 4, may he just be filling you with grace, his unmerited favor, that you may enjoy a life of worshiping him. A snapshot number three, Paul, who was a good friend, he asked for prayers and he bestows a wish of grace upon his friends. Okay. Let's just consider for a minute or two here how we should respond. If the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus Christ should produce in us friendships that are full of delight and full of depth, if that, if that is the case, then what should we do in order to develop friendships like that? And what should we do in order to have friends like that? Um... I'll tell you a couple things. Number one, I think that we should greet one another in love. I said at the beginning that greeting is embracing one another in love. You remember that? It's embracing one another. We need to be a, a, a church family that embraces one another in love. We don't, we don't stand at a distance from one another and, and just kind of keep arm link, arm's length. But instead, we, we are in each other's lives. Uh, the leaders and, uh, and I spoke about a couple of months ago about how we wanted to embrace one another more physically. Remember this, Mark, Ben? How we wanted to hug one another and make sure that we're more affectionate. Why? Because this is more fitting for those who have experienced God's grace. And so we want to embrace one another in love. We want to greet one another in love so that we can begin to demonstrate the kind of friendship that Jesus has extended to us. Second thing that we want to do is we want to serve one another in love. We want to serve one another in love. Let us look at all of these men who are serving Paul. I look at Paul who is serving these churches and these men. 
And we need to voluntarily, with, with creative initiative, serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is being a friend. And so we need to seek out ways to initiate service to one another. Third, I think we should pray for one another in love. As a matter of fact, according to the the letter of Colossians, I'm not sure that I could say that I'm your friend if I don't pray for you regularly. I just don't know that I could say that. I think that Paul demonstrates and teaches that friends labor for one another in prayer frequently, habitually, and zealously. And so we need to pray for one another if we're going to be friends with one another. And then I'll give you one more. I think we need to identify evidences of grace in one another. Identify evidences of grace in one another and communicate those things in love. David, I, I, I really think that, that if I'm your friend, I need to see where God has been working His grace in your life. And I need to not only be blessed by that, but I need to tell you that. I say, you know, David, I really appreciate your honesty and your genuine love for me. I appreciate the text that you send me. It shows me that you care for me. You're, you're a beloved brother of mine, and I thank you for that. Thank you for that friend. I, I need to communicate those things to me because I think that encourages you in your act of friendship toward me. Listen, how many of us are encouraged when people either don't say anything to us or say negative things to us? There's hardly anybody encouraged by that. But we are often blessed and encouraged and spurred on toward greater works when people give us words of encouragement and blessing. And those are the kinds of friends that we need to be. We need to encourage one another in love. And then, finally... We need to give praise and thanks to Jesus Christ who is our chief friend, who is our primary friend, who is our faithful friend. I don't know if you're familiar with the old hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. But I would like to ask you if you would, just uh, bow your head right now, close your eyes. I'm going to read the words of this hymn. And I want you to be able to identify with Jesus' friendship toward you and what your response should be toward Him. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in prayer. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to Him in prayer. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to Him in prayer. Are we weak and heavy laden, cumbered with a load of care? Precious Savior, still our refuge. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Do they friends despise, forsake thee? Take it to the Lord in prayer. In His arms, He'll take and shield thee. Thou will find a solace there. Right now, as you consider your own friendship, your friendship with other people, would you right now consider the ways in which Jesus has become a friend of yours? Would you consider how Jesus left heaven 
and came to earth to begin to bridge the gap that existed between you and him? Would you consider how he has pursued your highest good by living the life that you're supposed to live? Would you consider how he befriended you by dying the death that you're supposed to die? Would you consider how he befriended you by going above and beyond the call of duty, by rising from the dead and securing a relationship with you based on faith? Would you consider how Jesus is a friend of yours because right now he is not in heaven oblivious to your concerns and your life, but rather He is looking at you and loving you and praying for you and advocating for all of your needs, all of your concerns, all of your issues, all of your problems, because He is your greatest friend. Would you consider the friendship of Jesus right now as Phil and Candace lead us in a song that moves us into communion right now. If you are a a believer in Jesus, if you worship Him, then this morning you are free to come and take communion when that time starts and celebrate Jesus' ultimate friendship with you and everything that He did to make you a friend of His. For you families who have small children who are not yet believers, you are welcome to bring them up with you and they can observe the communion table and yet you don't have to have them partake. They can observe and see the blessing of that. If they already are believers and you want them to share, of course, you're free to do that as well. You know, if you're going to be a great friend, you first have to be a friend of Jesus. All right, and so I want to call you today to give your life to Christ. If you don't know Jesus, if uh, you've not ever trusted in Him, I would invite you to believe in Him. I'll be out uh, in the front today. If you want to give your life to Christ and you want to follow Him and you want Him to be a friend of yours and you to be a friend of His, then come see me. I can can lead you to Him. I know Him. Um, I want to read something uh, from Hugh Black on friendship to close us. I want you to be leaving today thinking about what God has called you to do and to be as a friend. There is nothing so important as the choice of friendship, for it both reflects the character and affects it. A man is known by the company he keeps. This is an infallible test for his thoughts and desires and ambitions and loves are revealed here. He gravitates naturally to his congenial sphere, and it affects character, for it is the atmosphere he breathes. It enters into his blood and makes the circuit of his veins. All love assimilates to what it loves. A man is molded into likeness of the lives that come nearest to him. I think that's why some people say, if you show me your five closest friends, I can tell you something about your character and your identity. Let's be a friend of Christ. Let's be a friend of one another. And let's elevate one another toward a life given over toward Jesus Christ. And I get an amen for that? Yeah. Amen. You're dismissed in the friendship of Jesus Christ himself.